gospel. The gospels. And we've been asking the question, what is the gospel? Like if somebody were to come up and ask you, hey, what's the gospel? What would your answer be? I would imagine some of us don't have an answer. We would freeze. We'd be like, oh no, oh, this has been my biggest nightmare. Somebody's asking me a question. Some of us would have a very solid answer that's been rehearsed, that we've really thought through. Some of us would just, like my friend in college, when I asked him, how do you know is Jesus real? His answer was, I don't know, I just know. Which, by the way, was the answer that actually brought me one step closer to who Jesus is. I had heard the rehearsed answers, and those didn't quite do it for me. And last week, we did baptisms, and that was amazing, and I love being part of it, celebrating new life in Jesus, celebrating, being obedient, proclaiming our faith to the world. And last week, we talked about uh, the blind guy who Jesus healed, and his testimony was, hey, all I know, I don't even know who this guy is. All I know is that I was blind and I had an interaction experience with this guy and now I can see. So there's simplicity and beauty in the gospel. Where if somebody comes up and asks you, hey, who is this Jesus guy? What's this about? What's the gospel? There is a sense and all you have to say is, hey, I don't know all the answers, but I was this, and now after meeting Jesus, I'm this. I was blind, now I see. That's it. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, will take care of the rest in that conversation. I want to take this a step deeper this week and talk about a story, an encounter that Jesus had. Turn with me to Matthew 19. We'll talk about this encounter. And then I want to ask a very uh, important question. And give a couple examples and and have a little bit of fun. Uh, It's like nerdy theological fun, but hopefully it'll cause us to think a little bit. Matthew 19. Uh, Jesus has this encounter with this man. If you've been in church for any period of time, you've probably heard this story. And I just want to kind of walk through it. I'll read through it point out a couple things, and then we'll ask some questions. Matthew 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? This is like every pastor's dream, right? That somebody off the street would just walk up and be like, Hey, how do I get to heaven? Oh, let me tell you. Yay, a notch in the belt. One more person saved. This is a dream question. If somebody walks up, Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Now, stop. From your growing up, from your knowledge of Christianity, from maybe the church you grew up in, or maybe you didn't grow up in a church and you've just wandered in here, but from your knowledge, what would you think think Jesus would give as an answer. Like, think about it. Don't tell me. There'll be way too many people talking once. I know all of you are eager to answer this question. But really think about it. What would you expect Jesus to answer this guy? Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Perfect cue. Perfect setup. 
what would you expect Jesus to answer? My guess is the first half of this interaction would be something that you would expect Jesus to answer. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, it's interesting. This guy's asking, what do I do to get eternal life? Which in that context, in that historical framework, he was really asking, what do I have to do to inherit like the good life, the heaven life? What do I have to do to arrive? And Jesus first asked, well, why do you ask me that? And then he says, uh, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. Which is an interesting answer, and one that I think most of us would think Jesus would answer with. How do I get in heaven? You have to believe the right thing. And at some point, your belief of the right thing should influence how you actually live. So you have to believe that the Ten Commandments are from God, that you should live according to them, and then at some point, you have to believe and live according to the Ten Commandments. I think this is probably normal, what most people would expect. How do I get to heaven? Well, there's this guy named Jesus. You have to believe that this guy named Jesus is the Savior. You have to say this prayer, and then you will get to heaven. Does the conversation stop there? No, because the guy goes, well, which ones should I believe? Which already is an interesting part of the conversation. Keep the commandments, well, which ones? Like maybe there's some that I'm not keeping, but I wanna keep the important ones that'll get me into heaven. Which ones should I keep, Jesus? And Jesus, Responds, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you, sh- you shouldn't steal, uh, you should not give false testimony, you should honor your mother and father, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Take a mental note, you could read back to the Ten Commandments and notice which ones Jesus didn't say. But this guy goes, awesome! You picked all the right ones, Jesus, I've kept all those things. I'm in! Jesus goes, hold up. It may not be that easy. All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus goes, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. I love this whole interaction because Jesus combines everything together. It's not just about belief but it's about how you're living your life. And then it's not just about belief and like doing good things because Jesus also gets to this heart issue, this heart question. Because believe the right thing, according to Jesus, live that out in your life, but then if something is getting in the way in your heart between you and Jesus, get rid of it. That's where he gets the money. Well, you didn't say anything about idolatry, 
But Jesus hits this guy in this conversation and goes, no, money is your idol, so sell it all, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Devote your whole life to following me. And what does the guy do? It turns from an interaction where he's like, yes, I'm in, to, oh no, I can't do that, Jesus. I don't want it that bad. This money, this stuff, all sustains me. It's who I am. It's my identity. It's what I depend on. And Jesus goes, okay, that's the whole point. Sell it all. Come follow me. That's the point. The guy went away sad. Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this, and they were astonished. Who can be saved? Like, Jesus, you've raised the level to this almost impossible bar. Jesus, who can do this? Which is an interesting question because they, the disciples, have done this, which you'll see in a minute. There's all sorts of interesting things in this story that if you really take time to slow down and read it and study it, like it'll pop off the page at you. Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. With your flesh, with your humanly being, this is impossible. But with God, anything is possible. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus, you're talking about us. We've left it all. We've left family. We've left finances. We've left our security. We've left our homes. We've left our everything to follow you. And then Jesus says, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't have time to explain that, but you can go look that up on the internet, and there's a lot on it. You could study it until uh, you're blue in the face what that means. Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. Now there's a lot there to dissect. And all this comes from basically this guy coming up and saying, how do I get saved, Jesus? And Jesus has a very pointed conversation with the man, which exposes his idolatry, and then has a very pointed conversation with the disciples. But it's a beautiful conversation because it weaves so much together. It's not just what you believe. It's how you live. And it's not just the actions you do in this life because it's also about your heart. That is devoted, dedicated, relied, connected to Jesus. And it's a heart that is transformed by 
Jesus. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus gives this explanation of what the eternal life is. Notice, this man comes and says, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Jesus answers this, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And it's just not about knowing the Father and knowing the Son in some like, I can take a quiz and pass it level. Not some like logical, uh, I can just know a lot of things about the Bible, know a lot of things about Jesus, know a lot of things about God, but all that knowledge has to make its way out of your head, into your heart, and throughout your entire life. I wonder if that guy regretted asking the question, Rabbi, how do I get eternal life? So I want to ask a question. Can you scrutinize and compare the gospels that are a part of our world with the gospels That is scripture. We've been talking all along. The gospel is the gospels. The gospel is all four gospels from different points of view, different emphasis, different uh, audiences they are writing to, but all four gospels make up the gospel of Jesus. Our tendency is to pick and choose what we want or to highlight or emphasis what we want is a part of the gospel. And I would challenge us, our primary role in following Jesus, one of the things that we have to do is make a constant habit of reading through the gospels, letting the gospels correct our theology in our view rather than us formulating this view and gospel presentation that is void of some aspects of the gospels. So my question, can you, as we go through life, scrutinize and compare what different movements what our society calls the gospel with the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we find in Scripture. There is a lot of secular gospels out there that they say, this will save you. Your finances will save you. What you achieve and accomplish in life will save you. Like, we don't like to think in terms like that, but we sure do live in terms like that. And I'm not necessarily talking about those gospels. I'm talking about movements within our culture, within our world, within our Christianity that says this is the gospel. And it usually, you can identify it because it puts a word in front of gospel. You get what I'm saying? Let me give you two examples. Now, nobody get crazy on me, okay? I want to give two examples and hold them up and say, here's two popular gospels 
in our culture, in the history of our Americanized church, that have been very prominent and still are very prominent, and I want to highlight these two in order to get us thinking. Whenever we hear the gospel, we should be able to walk back and go, oh, yeah. So if I compare this idea, this theology, this ideology to the gospels, here's what's good and beautiful about it, and here's what may be missing. So, the evangelical gospel. How would you define the evangelical evangelical gospel? Some define it as the John 3.16 gospel. Does anybody know what John 3.16 is? (laughs) Some loose murmurings like, oh, I kind of know what it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You're a sinner. You need Jesus. You see it at every like football game, every sporting event. You see a sign up, like a sign is supposed to have somebody read it and go, oh, Jesus, yes. Touchdown. Touchdown. I can celebrate now. Now I can be expressive. No, just kidding. Um, But the the core principle of the evangelical gospel Uh, It it became prominent after World War II. I got a lot of this information from another pastor called John Mark Homer. Uh, He's the inspiration for this whole sermon series, so this stuff isn't like my own content. But the evangelical gospel rose to prominence after World War II. And, And the core of it is this. You are a sinner. You're going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And if you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. How many have heard this gospel at some point in life? Yeah. It's an attempt to simplify the gospel for the masses. After World War II, uh, Billy Graham became popular. Eh, Popular is like an understatement. But there was this movement to simplify the gospel for the masses to go out and preach to people about Jesus. So this was the attempt. Let's simplify the message. Let's make it so it can happen in a conversation. Let's make it so that after I preach, I can preach this gospel to you. You can respond, say the prayer, get into heaven, and we'll all be good. Now, you can be very cynical about this and say, well, this is just an attempt to get more converts, uh, to put more tallies on the page so church leaders can feel successful about all the people that came to know Jesus. Or you can think of this positively, that a generation of people wanted to simplify the gospel message so that it could be preached to millions of people throughout the world. And through that preaching, people will come to know Jesus. And this is a generation that takes the, the, uh, Jesus' words of go out to every nation and preach the gospel and baptize very seriously, much more seriously than we do today. 
And so with each of these examples, I want to just remind you, there are things that are good and beautiful and awesome with this. And there are some places where the emphasis might not be fully encompassing the entire gospel, or it might be missing some things. So the evangelical gospel, it's a call to personal conversion, a call to a relationship with Jesus, a call to commitment to follow him. John Mark Homer says this, now there are issues with this gospel. Hear me, this is with the evangelical gospel, not with the gospels, okay? I want to try to separate us, get us thinking more, where are the gaps, what's missing, where's the emphasis, maybe there's a little bit that's left out, So John Mark Homer says this, now there are issues with this gospel. Mainly, it's not the full picture of the gospel we find in the scriptures, and the emphasis is in all the wrong places. You won't find this formula in scripture. It's just not the full picture of what the gospel is. See, Jesus' goal isn't to get you to heaven, but to get heaven into you. It's not about going up there to escape, to be in some amazing, beautiful place, but it's about bringing heaven down here. It's not about a transaction that will secure you in some blissful place someday, but it's about a transformation that's not just about you, but is about our entire society. It's not about what Jesus wants to do for you, It's about what Jesus wants to do in us. It's not just about what happens when we die. It's about what happens and how we truly live in partnership, in relationship with Jesus now. It's about being baptized into a family of believers where God is the Father and we are brothers and sisters all following Jesus. John Orberg says this about the evangelical gospel. In this way of thinking about salvation, the goal is to get from down here to up there. I don't know how many times when I was was, uh, not a Christian in high school, not a Christian my freshman, uh, part of my sophomore year into college. I don't know how many times people, friends, had the conversation with me. You're a sinner. You're going to hell. You need to believe in Jesus. The goal is to get to heaven. And I could just be completely honest with you. That gospel didn't resonate with me. It just didn't. Not that I didn't believe it, but I just didn't resonate. It didn't have me take a step closer to Jesus. He says it's not about how to get from down here to up there to know for sure that you're headed to the good place. It usually involves praying a very specific prayer and believing a very specific set of doctrine that makes somebody a Christian. Ironically, it does not necessarily involve a life committed to actually following and knowing Jesus. This gospel puts the emphasis on what you need to believe rather than how you can live. And there is a strong dealing with sin where this strong emphasis is on truth over grace. See, Jesus preached grace and truth together. There is a strong emphasis over truth over grace unless the grace benefits you somehow. 
On the other side of this, there is the social gospel. A liberation gospel. This gospel sees all of human history as a struggle through oppressed, through the oppressed and the oppressor. Uh, the views, it views most relationships in this power dynamic, and Jesus was this political revolutionary that came to liberate the poor and marginalized from the oppression. Jesus was killed as a threat to the status quo to the politicians. And he inaugurated, inaugurated a kingdom of peace, justice, equality. Jesus stands against those who abuse power and liberates those who are on the margins. In the social gospel, the church's role is primarily an activist role throughout the world. What's good about the social gospel? It understands that it's not just about getting to heaven, but it's about heaven coming down to us. It understands that you cannot separate the teaching of Jesus from how you live it out in this world. It understands that we are created in the image of God and we need to work hard to fight in every chance we get to keep and protect the image of God in each other rather than allow it being stripped away. It not only recognizes individual sin, but it also recognizes systematic sin. And it also is a great reminder of how Jesus subverted the world's models of power. There's problems with it as well. It's usually politicized. After this last couple of Years, the evangelical gospel is also politicized. And it's interesting because we live in a world where things are politicized, but Jesus was remarkably indifferent to politics during his day. He didn't go to Rome and take over Rome, who was the power, the empire of his day. He said, no, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. I'm doing something different here, something better. The social gospel tends to focus more on activism over belief. Where the evangelical gospel believes it's by faith alone that you are saved, the social gospel believes it's by your works that you are saved. And with dealing with people in sin, there is a heavy focus on grace and reluctance to call out sin on an individual level. But there is a sense that we have the truth when we call it out on a systematic level. As I explain these two Gospels, can you see? There's beauty in each. I think these two Gospels primarily over the last two years have started to rip apart at us. But as we take a step back and we scrutinize and we compare these two gospels, which there's many, many, many more. There's the prosperity gospel. Uh, There's the uh, 
moral therapeutic gospel. There's a lot of gospels that people are clinging on to in hopes that it will save them. But as we take a step back and we scrutinize and compare these two gospels with their emphasis, with their things they're primarily focused on and compare them to the gospels, we start to see the gaps, the holes. In which we go, man, the evangelical gospel, it's beautiful. Amazing things have happened in our world on behalf of Jesus' name because of this movement. But I think we could be honest and say there are some holes. That when you read the entire gospel, the entire gospels fill in some of those holes. And the social gospel, same thing. There are some beautiful things that are of the kingdom of God within the context, the movement of the social gospel. There are other things, also things that have gone horribly wrong. We could say, yeah, there's some beautiful things there. There's some amazing aspects of the gospels in the social gospel, but it doesn't contain the entire gospel. Worship team can come up, I'm way over time. But I want to get us thinking. In thinking in terms of we are reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that is the lens that we are putting on as we go out into the world, as we form our theologies. That it's not just this over here or this movement over here. There's a strong uh, case that these movements, if you put all the movements together, you will have the full, beautiful, amazing gospel which saves, which is the good news. But you separate these things out and you go, I align with this one. No, I align with this one. No, our church aligns with this one. And it starts to become divisive and you start to get to the point where you only have a portion of the gospel. And you are missing out on the full, beautiful gospel in which Jesus came for. So next steps, go and read one of the Gospels. Mark is the shortest. If you want to just go the shortest route, John is great. Luke, there's a strong sense of Luke is favoring the oppressed around him and the marginalized around him. Matthew is is writing with a largely Jewish audience in mind. But read the Gospels because they are the Gospels. Amen? Amen.